Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. And welcome back, guys. Thank you for your patience as I hit pause on the show while I was off the road and out of reception exploring the Tasmanian wilderness, hiking the Three Capes track and the Overland track. Today's episode has been longly awaited. Meet the incredibly interesting John Hamilton. I cannot go to Tasmania and not learn and discuss the largest carnivorous marsupial, the Tasmanian devil, who is only found in the wild here in Tasmania. See my last Insta post to see videos of them feeding and the like. To chat about the devil, John is just the person for this. He has a broad education and has been involved in the conservation of Tassie devils for over 40 years and is the owner of the Tassie Devil Unzoo. Our conversation traverses John's work, the story of the Tassie Devil's conservation, including the devil facial tumor disease, the concept of the Unzoo, and much more. Listen in. Hi, John. Thank you for meeting with me. Chloe, what a delight to have you here. All, <laughs> all the way from Bermuda. We don't get many visitors from Bermuda. We've been here for 40 years and yeah. uh, most people from most countries. Yes. I think the most unusual visitor we, we ever had was, uh, was a couple from Greenland. Oh, very good. So it, we can join that unusual list. Well, just about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, so to start, can you tell us a bit about your personal background? You know, I came, my family was farming, um, and, 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 and I still have a farm, and so it's fifth yeah. generation of Tasmanian farmers. Oh, lovely. But, uh, and, uh, and my, I studied agricultural science. Mm-hmm. Here uh, in Tasmania? No, in Victoria, at a, okay. at a college in Victoria. Yep. And I still keep in touch with my old friends there. And yeah. That, that was many decades ago now. Oh, great. And uh, after that, I was farming Mm-hmm. and then drifted into agricultural broadcasting, running a program here called The Country Hour. Every, every ah. lunchtime, it's a... So you would hold a radio show? Oh, yeah, we, we used to produce and yeah. present and do the interviews. And, oh, great, and, and, so this and, is somewhat familiar. Well, <laughs> it, this is very, very easy for me. I can, uh, yeah. it, there, there are no butterflies on, on, on this occasion. Yes, I can tell, it's good. Yeah, so, uh, and thereafter, uh, moved into print journalism Yes. Uh, for a while, and realized, this is quite, I still find this interesting, that everything I created and put a lot of hard work into in print journalism was, was in everybody's rubbish bin by midday next day. <laughs> no, the, 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 the contribution you made was trashed every day. Right. I don't so, think about that. Yeah. No, well, that's the conclusion. I wanted to have, do something concrete uh-huh. and get back into farming. So an opportunity came and we did quite a lot of analysis. It was very fortunate my agricultural science background included marketing and everything mm. from marketing to soil science to animal health uh, to agricultural economics. Mm. And so but if I put all those together, it was a very broad uh, education. So I was able to do quite a lot of good analysis yeah. and worked out that the highway from Hobart to Port Arthur in the 1970s attracted a lot of visitors. Mm. So if we could find a place somewhere along the way, there might be an opportunity too. And the plan was to showcase the wonderful animals and plants of Tasmania. Yeah, okay. And I still have my original sign from, from 40 years ago. Yes. So and, and, the, and, and, the, and the aim still that we have here is to show people the wonderful animals and plants of Tasmania. The aim has really not changed, but the methods changed greatly. Mm. So we set up a place called Tasmanian Devil Park. It was very mm. modest, small buildings, uh, but it was very successful from the out, from the outcome. Um, along the way, we uh, joined with some others on another project at the advice of the head of the Department of Tourism, mm-hmm. and we nearly tripped up. That that didn't work mm. uh, using our formula here. So I retired here and had to lick my wounds for some years, actually, and and managed to survive. It was a bit of an uh, uh, of a financial trial to get through that failure because a lot of money was spent uh, and uh, and I haven't been in partnership with anybody else since then we've simply stuck to our guns 
and this place has uh, served us well. Yeah. When I say served us well, look, I guess we've made it attractive enough for people from all around the world to come here. Yes. But it's given us an opportunity to raise a family and, you know, and, and, and when retirement comes, it, some people say it should have been years ago. <laughs> uh, but when retirement comes, I think retirement won't, won't be too uncomfortable. So, yeah. So I, I expect life's plans ticked along pretty well. <laughs> but along the way, we, uh, uh, we managed to show people the unique animals and plants of Tasmania. And uh, this is an exotic place. Mm. Um, it's not quite as exotic as the Galapagos, but it's another Madagascar or another Tierra del Fuego. Uh, the, uh, we have 500 plant species here, uh, 2,000 plant species of vascular plants in Tasmania. About 500 of those are endemic to the island. Wow. And some of them uh, are really, really special. Mm. And along with that, we have a repository here of uh, the old native animals. Uh, of, of greater Australia. Yes, yeah, yep. And uh, so some of them, uh, the, the most, the, the finest examples have survived here. Yes. So, um, ranges from Tasmanian devils through to uh, a most extraordinary type of snail. I've never seen one, and it lives in the hills just around here, only oh. on the peninsula here. Oh, right. Yes, <laughs> and it, it hardly... It, it's a slug or a snail. It's really people are not sure what it's uh, what it is. Uh, it looks as though it should be in the Amazon jungle. Really? It, it, it's bright green with lots of red on it. Oh wow! Which, which, which is highly unusual for for anything that lives around here. It that, definitely that's, has that poison. Yes, kind of it look does. To it. it does. And uh, a year or so ago, uh, finally the, the the final research was done and said, look, it's a particular species. But not only that. Yeah. Uh, it's in its own genus. Yeah, oh, and, that's interesting. And, and the great announcement was made. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's named after Sir David Attenborough. Oh, is it? Yes, how about that? <laughs> so, so, what's the snail's name? Uh, something um, Atabanaris or something. It is, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> genus At Attenborough, Attenboroughensis or something like that. There we are. Slugamus Davidus. Yes, yeah, there we Atlas. are. Um, oh, very good. Uh, it, it, it lives in the curled up bark in the wetter forest, and this is a very dry summer, so it's yeah. not a good time to go and yes. look. So maybe if I can find some time, I'll go and have a look there. Yeah, go and explore. So this uh, Tasmanian Devil Unzu has been for over 40 years that no. you've been working no, on? We start, no, no, we started off as Tasmanian Devil Park. So um, the Tasmanian Devil has always been a centrepiece for absolutely. the pool. Because it's greatly changed its conservation status over the last 40 years. Oh, ab ab so absolutely. We've talk gone more about that. Um, but well, it's always been called the Tassie Devil. Um, originally Tasmanian Devil Park. Park, yep. Um, when Tasmania Devils became endangered, we slipped conservation in there. So that was the yes. second name, Tasmanian so Devil when Conservation. So um, becoming about, about, fif about 15 years ago. Okay. And, uh, and I can address that in, yeah, in, 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 in a great... In great detail, actually, because yeah. I was on the I was in the first group of uh, of Save the Devil scientists. Really? Yes, and I was the only to one actually notice it. Um, and uh, well, yes, to, to to sit down and say, do we have a problem? The answer was, we think we may well have a big problem. Mm. What can we do about it? So a think yeah. tank came up with a whole lot of crazy ideas with no funding. Right. So I, yeah. yeah, actually, can you tell us more about that? So how did people start to think there was a problem? Uh, the history of, of devil facial tumour disease, yeah. which now has the Tasmanian devil as an endangered species, and uh, if I've had a look at the world WWF figures, mm. and it appears there are more blue whales and more gorillas now than there are Tasmanian devils. So that wow. gives, but the species has been saved by uh, good intervention mm. in, in allowing nature to take its course. Now, this devil facial tumour disease is uh, not only unusual, it's yeah. unique, confounding, uh, and uh, just extraordinary. Because it's not like it got introduced like no. mange for the wombats. It's sort of just a weird genetical mutation? Well, or Well, it isn't a genetical what? mutation. What Look, uh, in the, it's, uh, when we sat down in 2004-05, right at the beginning, we were not sure. We thought it might be a cancer. And then not long afterwards, a researcher called Richmond Lowe, L-O-H, uh, at the Government Pathology Laboratory in Launceston, uh, came to the conclusion that it was a neuroendocrinal carcinoma of subcutaneous origin. Mm. 
Okay. Now, carcinomas of cancer, of course, the yes. subcutaneous, that's the result of devils biting each other and passing the cancer cells on in the saliva. Mm. Now, so this is a, a contagious cancer. Um, neuroendocrinal means it affects the nervous and the hormonal systems. Yeah. And uh, we've had quite a number of cancer experts, oncologists, visitors here mm. over the years. It's unusual uh, to think of a contagious tumour, isn't it? It is a contagious tumour. It yeah. is a contagious tumour. And neuroendocrinal carcinomas do occur in humans mm. uh, in apparently about 3 or 4%. And they're regarded as the most evil of all cancers. Right. That's that's what's been. I'm, I'm no cancer expert or oncologist, mm. and it's been difficult, really, to get my head around <laughs> all of this because I've had to, had to go through a learning process. Yeah. That's where the old agricultural science education comes in because yes. it gave me a good base on which to, you know, uh, on, on, on which to look. Keep up. Yeah, to, to, to keep up. So, um, essentially, uh, the origin of the disease is the result. Of a mutation. Now, this is the work of a collaboration between a team of scientists, Cambridge University, mm-hmm. and the Menzies Institute in Hobart, led by Professor Greg Woods. Now, this is a medical research institute studying an animal cancer. Mm. There you are. Yeah. And the reason is because any knowledge and understanding of this particular disease could well be a benefit for humankind. Right. So, so, so we're starting to get into something <laughs> incredibly unusual and serious here. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. And so uh, what was discovered was that uh, the first female, and I'll put the date at hmm. about uh, ni- 1980s, early 1990s, uh, one devil which had cancer bit another one. So D1 bit D2. Mm-hmm. When D1 bit D2, it transferred some saliva into the bite wound. What had happened, the conclusion is, that the MHC surrounding each of those cancer cells was either lost or had become ineffective. Now, the MHC is the trigger for an immune response. Mm-hmm. When D1 bit D2 the cancer cells didn't send any signal through the MHC. I'm not quite sure what happened. Mm-hmm. So D2's immune system accepted those not as foreign cells but as like cells, and the like cells started growing in the wound. Mm. Now, this is a perfect situation for, for cancer or for cell growth because the bite wound is a puncture wound. It seals over, fills with serum, the perfect medium for cell growth, and so the cancer cells took off. Mm-hmm. And that's the origin of it. It basically is the result of a mutation, a mutated cancer. Okay. And and as we all know, there's a new strain of influenza each year, and where yes. did Ebola come from, etc., etc. Look, these mu- mu- mutations have been yes. part of, 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 of life on, on this planet for, yes. forever, really. Yeah. <laughs> Evolution and progression. And do Tassie devils fight each other? That is yeah, normal behaviour for biting? It is. It is. Yeah. It, they can be quite aggressive towards each other at mating, but even more specifically uh, at, uh, at at mating and also at, bite, at, at feeding times. Okay. Um, the devils are carnivorous. Mm-hmm, and if yes. you throw one bone into a pack of dogs, there's going to be a big scuffle. Yes. And that's pretty much what happens with Tasmanian devils okay. in the first instance. Yeah. But then they settle down and a number of devils will seemingly, most unhappily, uh, share <laughs> a, uh, a wallaby carcass. Because devils are, de- devils are, uh, are uh, scavengers. Yes. They're not very good at catching anything. So okay. wallabies and possums form the most food. And of course, when they find a wallaby, it's an intact whole wallaby. Mm-hmm. Uh, there we are. So, so devils will gather at a feeding point. That's, okay. that's the first thing. The second thing is, mating is with Tasmanian devils is highly unusual. Uh, the, the boys and the girls really do the rounds, and so there's, there's a lot of uh, interaction mm-hmm. and population going on here all over the place. Yeah. And the males can be extremely aggressive towards the females, scruff them by the neck, break through the skin, oh, disease transfer, and it doesn't only happen with one male to another one, it can happen all around the place, you mm-hmm. see. Now, the cancer uh, typically kills within uh, five months it's pretty much always found it, yeah it is it's pretty much always been found to be fatal mm. uh, there might be one or two instances of suspected immunity but basically 
it's it, it just it's just wipes them out. If the disease is there and devils bite each other, they'll die. Yes. So. So is it malignant? Is it spreading to vital organs, or is it just in the face and it stops no, it them? No, start, it starts around the face, and then quickly it spreads through the nervous and hormonal system. So, so, okay. so, so it's a systemic cancer yeah. rather than the specific one. It, yeah. it, it doesn't simply, you know, like, like 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 a lump with breast cancer, for instance. It's not like that. It's yes. a very different type of cancer. Yeah. So I understand. Please don't put me down as a cancerist, <laughs> but uh, as you can see, so uh, in 2004-5. Yeah. Um, I received a, a visit from a government zoologist, wildlife zoologist called Heather Hesterman. She said, look, this is the scenario. The fox may well be taking hold in Tasmania for the first time. Yikes. Said, and if Tasmanian devil numbers crash... How did the fox get here? Uh, look, <laughs> the, but the, the, the fox has not taken hold. Okay. But, but, um, so it's all, it came... Some were introduced. Earlier? Some were introduced. Okay. Um, um, 20 or 30 years ago. Okay. And there is still an occasional sighting, but mercifully the fox has not taken here. So Great. effectively we have no wild foxes. Yeah. Um, we have no dingoes. That's another story. Yeah. Uh, all, no wild dogs and essentially no feral cats. So, mm. so, so, so none of these intruders really affect our wildlife population to any, to any considerable extent. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's effectively they don't exist. Yeah. They might locally. Yeah. But but we haven't lost species because of the introduction okay. of these animals. So the story was, if the fox numbers increase, it could displace the devil, and mm. that's it would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I happily joined a group of six scientists, uh, five or six, and we sat down and we met informally, and we came up with suggestions uh, among them was can we isolate this peninsula where we are now mm. now off the southeast corner of Tasmania which is our location there is there's a, a double peninsula here with two very narrow pieces of land connecting us we're only the cling to the rest of Tasmania so it's a little like an egg timer hanging off there so mm. there are two peninsulas um, at the top of the egg timer is a canal at the place called Dun Alley and halfway down the egg timer, you cross a, a very narrow piece of land called Eagle Hawk Neck, where once upon a time there was a line of dogs and a group of garrison of soldiers stopping convicts escaping because this geography was recognised nearly 200 years ago as being a pretty good place to send uh, <laughs> to, to, to send the worst of the convicts. Right, yeah. So the, the Port Arthur, uh, which is nearby, uh, was a place for repeat offenders not the general number of convicts that were around, so um, and very few escaped. So mm-hmm. we're now using the old convict geography to save <laughs> Tasmanian devils. Interesting. And so th- if, if we're going to isolate this area and stop the disease coming in, then we can save the Tasmanian devils okay. here. That was one of the strategies. Okay. In, in the, um, Brilliant. And it, it actually panned out well. Well, it has. It yeah. has. And, and that's our story, and I'm sure mm. we'll get onto that in a moment. Yeah. The second strategy we had was can we... Uh, do you mind if I just go and get something? Yeah, yeah, I can always yeah. um, edit out, actually. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, I'll just go and get something. I'd, yeah. like to, I'd like to read this to you. Yeah, yeah. I'd love you to. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of paper. I can I filed it away, and I'm pretty sure I know where it is. In fact, I can lay my hands on it. Uh, I can do that. Yeah, so you say that there is a second strategy. Well, look, the, the second strategy was... If, as we suspect, and we weren't quite sure how the disease really was transferred then, mm. and I'll get onto that in just a second. Yeah. Um, but uh, if that's the case, then wouldn't it be great if we could just have a big captive breeding program? So at one of the meetings, uh, for, uh, Dr. Mena Jones came up with the proposal that a thousand to fifteen hundred animals might be uh, a suitable genetic pool. Now that's been achieved. Wow. Yeah, and I'll just read you something here because uh, this is one of them. This came from Alistair Scott, who was the general manager of uh, the resource management and in the Department of Water and Environment. Mm -hmm. That's the Wildlife Department. And this is dated June 2004, 15 years ago. Right. Uh, Thank you very much for your proposal last week, John. I've been giving it in the broader issue of captive management some, some thought since. As you would appreciate, the focus of the disease remains very much on addressing the disease threat in the wild population. 
Our team is focusing on diagnostic research at the Mount Pleasant Laboratory and with interstate institutions and on finding out more about the disease in the wild, its extent, movement, incidence, etc. We also continue to work up management options for wild and captive. The question of a proactive captive breeding program remains problematic in the absence of a diagnostic test. We just don't know what is causing the disease, how it's transmitted, and that lack of knowledge does limit our options at this point in time. That tells you where we were 15 years ago. We yeah. didn't know what was happening. That's right. Big question marks. A big question mark. <laughs> so, so a lot's been solved since. So Very much so, mm. by, by some wonderful efforts. Great. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, so the Captain Breeding Project now involves maybe 20 or 30 institutions, a number internationally, uh, with a thousand or so devils, I, I suspect, and uh, that's very, that's managed in the genetics, and there's a, uh, you know, that's quite a project. Mm -hmm. The devils are swapped here and there. Uh, we stepped aside from that and no longer breed Tasmanian devils here. So, okay. which, as the original Tasmanian devil place, here in this location or here at your centre? Uh, at our loc at, at the centre here. Yeah. We we started breeding in 1980. And uh, a zoologist friend called Randy Rose and myself, excuse me, <coughs> a zoologist friend called Randy Rose and myself uh, observed uh, some devil neonates uh, and they were four millimetres long, the size of a grain of rice and unfortunately uh, we didn't write didn't make a note. We only need to write 100 words and we probably would have had the first official observation of young Tasmanian devils. Wow, they're that small? When they, they are, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes they are. So yeah. the female, as I mentioned, has uh, uh, a number of partners and can end up with fertilised over from each of those mm. and can give birth to about uh, 20 to 40 Oh young, my goodness. Each the size of a grain of rice Whoa. after a gestation of only, not, we measured it at 19 days, now people think wow. it's 20. Wow. <coughs> and uh, only four can be fed. So the others, the others simply don't make it. Right. So these are tiny little pink yeah. blobs with four legs of some sort, a digestive system, respiratory system, alimentary canal, but no eyes, no ears, no hind legs, no tail. Wow. They're just little pink blobs. <laughs> and how long does that take to develop out of the... Well, uh, look, they stay in the pouch for six months and grow into furry little things the size of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a medium-sized kitten. Yeah. After six months. Yeah. And all that, and that takes place in the mother's pouch. And in, and, and in later months, uh, the mother will leave them in a den, yep. a safe place where the little devils are able to get into nooks and crannies. Uh, they, they really look for little hideaways because big devils can easily eat them. Yes. And little devils just are able to, when they become independent from the mother, are able to climb trees, just like possums. Right. And, big, and then they lose that ability, so they're able to escape the ravages of large ah. Tasmanian devils. Ah. These are pretty interesting animals. They are very interesting. And where does, um, just to sidetrack, the, the history of the name, do you know? We do, we do. <laughs> Um, the fellow, one of the first, or arguably the most esteemed uh, settler, uh, private person in the first settlement of Hobart in 1804, was a fellow called George Predo Harris. He was a surveyor uh, connected with the scientific community in England, and he came out and arguably chose the site for the uh, for the site of Hobart. Mm -hmm. And he had had a very good general knowledge, and that was in 1804. By 1806, a paper he'd written had been presented to the scientific community in London uh, by his good friend, the famous Sir Joseph Banks, who was the botanist on on the, on the Captain right. Cook voyages. Yeah. So, uh, so George Peter Harris named it. Uh, the, just called it the Native Devil, uh, and. Uh, Based on its appearance or the sounds at night? Well, but, yeah, but, no, because of the sounds at night, it's, mm. it, it's little red ears, it's black oh, and white, yes. it's fierce growl, etc. Yes. So all that mean, it meant it was a devilish little beast. It, <laughs> whereas none of the other animals were, were, yeah. were like it at all. Yeah. So uh, now the devil's binomial is um, Psychophilus, uh, lover of dead flesh. 
Harrisiani, named after George Harris. Oh, right. There we are. There you go. <laughs> there we are. So, 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 so he's pretty famous. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, the name is um, very endearing. It describes them well. And would you say that that reproductive system is an advantage for their survival, it being fairly quick? I guess there's further development in the pouch. Um, uh, look, it, I, that, they're short-lived. Yeah, are they? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's a bit of a mathematical formula I've worked out for the fecundity of, uh, or the breeding capability of, of our marsupials. Right. Um, the kangaroo can live 12 or 15 years and have one a year yeah. in a lifetime, 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tasmanian devil lives only five years or so and typically has about oh. three breeding years, three to four a year in a lifetime, 10 to 12. Right. Then the devil has a cousin called the eastern quoll and that's found only in Tasmania and the eastern quoll has a life of only about three years two breeding years but it can breed up to six in a lifetime 10 to 12 and then we have the most the little monster which is the size of a very small rat half the size of a rat and it's called an antichinus there are two or three species of these Um, an antichinus is a cousin of the Tasmanian devil it's mainly insectivorous, but it but it's also carnivorous and will happily eat flesh as well. Mm. Uh, so and 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 it's slightly omnivorous. It'll it'll eat grubs and things in the ground and 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 the roots of some certain tubers, etc. Yeah. The uh, this animal lives only one year, a generation a year. Just for, a for, year. For, for, oh for a mammal, for, for a mammal is is it is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And uh, the female can uh, produce. Uh, the, depending on where it is, this varies a little bit on location, but 10 to 12 a year. So, um, interesting. So, so there's yeah. a bit of a, there's a bit of a mathematic, I call it bush mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, and it, there's, there's definitely some, um, there's a pattern there. Oh, there, uh, look, I, there, yeah. there is a mathematical pattern. <laughs> it is. And, and it's fairly consistent. It applies, it applies very often, not necessarily in every single case, but yeah. it applies often enough to say, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now the antichinus uh, is rarely seen, and we do have some around here, uh, but just on the eastern side of this peninsula, only about three years ago, a new species was identified, and it's called the Tasman Peninsula Dusky Antichinus. So here we have Atmaris snail and the Dusky Antichinus and the number of plant species which occur. Yeah, only sounds on, very exotic. Only on this marvellous little peninsula. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty special place. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And um, I was thinking previously, if the Tassie Devil is a scavenger, is it just simply waiting for animals to die? Yeah, or? it does. It yeah. does. So, so there's it, enough it, supply for that. There is. There and is. Now with more roadkill, is that an advantage? For no, roadkill. get hit. <laughs> ro- I discount roadkill from the equation totally. Yeah. It's what people see. I, I do think, if we're considering anything, we need to look at the really big picture in order to understand. We can't just look at what that which is before us. Mm. I find that a bit naive. Now, that's maybe somebody who's been dealing with the animals for 40 years mm. and been able to look at things over a reasonably, a reasonably long term. So road kills are merely just a handful of animals killed on ribbons as you go through Tasmania. Um, animals are dying out off the roads all the time, mm-hmm. naturally. Uh, and they've got a keen sense of smell, they can find devils, them. Devils have. Devils yeah. have got a really keen sense of smell and a technique for finding their food, which is okay. pretty basic. They don't roam round and round in circles until they hope to trip over something. Yeah. Um, on most nights, there's a slight breeze. It's very rare to have a totally still night. Yeah. So on most nights, there's a slight breeze. So the devils will move across the wind, and when they pick up a scent. They'll turn it right angles, follow the scent, and there's the food. Okay. Great. Yeah, it, it, it's really simple. And I've, I've, I've observed this um, in, it's in, 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 in the fields, in, in, on farms. Yeah, that's a yeah, great technique. Well, it's very simple. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, obvious, it works. isn't it? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's how they find their food. And, and when one Tasmanian devil finds its food, it makes a, um, a huffing, gruffing sort of <coughs> that mm. type of sound. Yeah. That carries through the night. Okay. Uh, and it attracts other Tasmanian devils, so they'll come in, there'll be a lot of growling and snarling, but essentially the devils quite happily socialise by sharing their food. Oh, so they're purposely vocalising, you think? Yes, they are. They yeah. are. Even it, though they're a bit aggressive with yes, the food, but yeah, it's it, social time. 
dinner at the table. <laughs> you know, we have we have a wide range of visitors here. Yeah. We have those people who come to see and be fascinated by the animals, and then we have people who come and rather more crudely are looking forward to the the devil's equivalent of a dog fight. You know, get into oh. it. Yes, I mean there, there there are people like that, and right. and, and and we and, and, and I'm sure you're not, and, yeah. and I certainly no. am I'm not like that. And um, look, it, uh, it still astounds us that, that, that there are still some people who, who believe, you know, a good punch on the chin is a good way to solve a problem. Right, yeah. So, so devils appear to do this, but, they, but essentially they, they share their food. Mm. Now, it, this is on the basis that devil number one makes lots of noises and devils number two to six will come in and share it. And a few nights later, devil number five will find one, so it calls it around. So, oh, so yes, by the, yeah. so by sharing their food, it's a key to their survival, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it now, a, a devil weighs up to seven to ten or twelve kilograms. That's a big one, and it can eat about four to five kilograms oh. a night, and it, the, the ra- almost half its body weight. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, and that'll last it for a while. And they eat everything. They eat all the fur, the, the bones, yeah. uh, and the intestines. Wow. Now, we're sitting in uh, a little picnic shelter yeah. here at Aran Zoo. Yeah. And guess what? There's another one just over there. Yes. Five metres away. And in the corner of that, there was a... Tasmanian devil. Let's go and see if there's oh, one over there. Yeah. Right, no, he, he, he might have come back. Yeah. Let's go check. Let's go check. No. Look, he he so hasn't. One... He ha- he hasn't. But but, <laughs> but 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 he has. You, you can see he's bundled up some some leaves and things. There. Yeah. So we've had little... a wild Tasmanian devil just just living here in the Anzu. Oh wow. And this is part of the principle of what we do. Yeah. We don't know how many animals we have at our Anzu. Yes. A zoo does because they have a fence around. It. Yes. The wild devils can come and go here. Right. And or the wild animals can come and go. Actually, yeah, that would probably bring us on to the, the question about your Anzu, um, well, and the concept of that. Well. The principle of the Anzu is pretty much the opposite of that of a zoo. The reason, <laughs> yes. the reason is, well, look, we, the, the background of this is that, but uh, for, for 25 years, we were here. We developed a wildlife park, probably roughly hundreds of zoos and wildlife parks around Australia. I don't know, yeah. dozens and dozens of them. A lot of them have a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, you might go to a koala park or a platypus park. Mm-hmm. We had a Tasmanian devil park. Yeah. And the, the, telling the story of the Tasmanian devil has always been our focus. But alongside that, we had a collection of animals that we kept here by caging them up. Mm-hmm. And about twenty, about 2006, uh, which is only about 12 or 13 yeah. years ago, we had a Future Directions weekend and had some consultants come in and flew people from around Australia. It was quite a big deal for mm. Caroline and myself to host these people. Yeah. And among them was a fellow called John Coe, a zoo designer who's worked at over 150 zoos around the world. The great zoos of the world pretty much all have a John Coe footprint. <laughs> Do they? Uh, yeah. And he had, not long before, uh, 2006, uh, developed a paper called the Unzu uh, Alternative, which he'd written with a colleague called Ray Mendez. And they describe a zoo as a place where people come to see animals from around the world that are in cages and enclosures, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. So they came up with an alternative called the Unzu, where people come to discover wild animals and plants and are immersed in that environment mm-hmm. in natural surroundings so he had a look here and he said I like what you see what I see here uh, you've got lots of little animals running around how many <laughs> bird species that you weren't quite sure you have to find that out so he in fact devised a, a master plan for us Great. and we've stuck to about 80 to 85 percent of his master plan Wow, yep. And we spent two to three years pretty much pulling this place apart. Wow. And, and tearing down cages. Yeah. So, 
it met with great consternation um, with our traditional visitors mm. who said, well, the animals have gone. <laughs> and so what we've done is come up with an alternative. And I think by doing this, and John Coe wrote us a letter, so that if you, if, what do you have is the opportunity to basically uh, lead the world and become the Unzu of the future. Mm. So he chose us right at the bottom of Tasmania <laughs> to see if we can devise an Unzu. this was the first Unzu in the world? Oh, uh, well, it's the first, I, I, I still call it a project. We yeah. call it an Unzu, but it's really a project. Is, yeah. is it ever really going to be an Unzu? Um, we're, we're pretty well progressed with it. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. We had a bird show called Kings of the Wind in which we flew birds of prey and they did the most spectacular things. I went to Disney in Florida yes. where the guy who developed the bird show there came out on contract from America and in under three months set up a wonderful little one-person whizzo bird show with birds flying all around the place. Now, bird shows are notoriously difficult to maintain. It's just, it, it, it's, it's basically managing animals on the edge. Mm. You only feed the animals enough and then so they want more, so they'll come and they'll, and, in, mm. and they'll want to be fed in the show. So that's the way yes. it's done. And you need to keep them in small areas so they don't burn up too much energy. It's all really tight captive management. Right. So we decided we'd get rid of all of these things mm. after, after many years. Yeah. And so a bird, bird show called Kings of the Wind, where we would have uh, a falcon flying high, uh, and in another instance, another falcon diving between people's legs. We had 33 people lined up at one stage, and were, and were half progressed towards claiming a, a Guinness record wow. for doing this. And this was spectacular stuff, and we shut it down. Right. And we turned it into birds of the bush. Ah. So yesterday we had a, a, a major uh, travel television team here. Ah. Yeah. And Connor, our youngest guide here, who just has that wonderful little touch. Yeah. Opened the birds of the bush show with, hang on everybody, here we are. And the wild rosellas flew in. And then the wild native hens flew in. Oh, wow. So how <clears> is that achieved? They come into food and etc. Yeah. But but they live around the place. Got be, their be, be, yeah, yeah. Well, no, these are wild birds and, and, yeah, and, and it's quite natural... it, it's quite unpredictable. Yeah, okay. At times. So um, sometimes the animals are there, sometimes they're not. Yeah. So the the idea of an unzu, instead of setting people off on a track and they come across a cage and so they go click, click, click. And then they move to the next cage, and then they complain because that animal's asleep and not smiling <laughs> at them. And then they go to the next one. Yeah. I mean, typically, in large zoos, you go to the primate section. And to be quite frank, it's all because that primates have nothing to do with the with the environment. Yeah. You know, they, they, they line up South American monkeys with apes from Asia, yeah. etc., as though, hang on, there's some link. And it's basically an artificial scientific link. Yeah. It's it's nothing to do with how these animals live it's how we want we want those animals to fit into the human perspective mm. and that's pretty much what zoo what, what a lot of zoos not all mm -hmm. the great zoos don't, are, are stepping away from that mm -hmm. but what we want to do we've got an environment here where all these wonderful animals live together so you come into the environment that we have nurtured saved and enhanced mm. um, so we're now sitting in an area which once upon a time there was a bramble patch. So we cleared out the brambles, which is an introduced species. Mm -hmm. We cleared it out. And what I've done here is set up a collection of uh, alpine and rainforest plant species, most of which have survived. So we're setting up our own little environment here uh, and right on the edge of a piece of natural forest. Yeah. In the natural forest, we have discovered 15 species of little native orchids. Wow. There we are. And they just, they pop up out of the ground a few inches high. Wow. Some only an inch out of the ground. And you really need to know what you're looking for. Mm. But we've logged them and we keep we keep data on them. And then we find some of them dug up. And that's, we say, that's where a pot of roos come in and dug up that tuber because they're, they're, they're like a potato. They're, 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 orchids, orchids live with little tubers under the ground generally. Yeah. So that's a food source for some of the animals here. Mm. And you think, oh, I've lost an orchid. 
No, we haven't. We're going to Potteroo. That's right. <laughs> so, t- so that's the principle of it. Yes. So it's understanding how the bush works. Yeah, and it's lovely that these animals, um, even with the presence of people, aren't scurrying away. I guess. Well, that's uh, that's fear, true. Or? Well, part of part of it, and here I go. Yeah. No, okay. Look, um, this gets me on to the third generation of wilderness. Yeah. Right now, the first generation of wilderness decided that it would uh, put a barrier between urbanisation and the natural world. So it put a barrier. Don't you dare step across the line. And that's the result. There's a lot of politics still going on with that. There's Mm. a line there. We don't want anything to happen inside this National Park World Heritage Area. There's a line there, right? That's the first generation. The second generation of wilderness says, look, we can actually enhance that and, and blur that line a bit. So in other words, you know, there's a bit of a mixture. And the third generation says, throughout the history of this planet, humans have roamed everywhere and done their daily things, mm. gone about their daily business. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that we can live with our animals and our plants. Yeah. And yeah. that's the message from the Yanzu. Come and we can show you how we can live here. Now, we've enhanced that. We're educating people. It's a business, it's commercial, we make a living. We've got quite a wonderful team here who we like to think are pretty well paid. We, you know, they're, they're, they're well recompensed um, for this. We'd like to think they've got great job satisfaction. They enjoy telling people from all around the world that you can live yeah. among the native animals and yeah. plants. And also run a business. Yes. Now, there's an advantage in all of this, do you know? Just this morning, I'm having, uh, and maybe before you leave here, yeah. um, I'll be having a conversation with a local person. Along the highways here, uh, there are some uh, electronic uh, devices which are triggered by car headlights. They beep and flash about 40 to 50 per kilometre on special posts beside the highway, and they're very annoying for wildlife. So wallabies and possums that are near the highway are frightened away by car headlights from a few hundred metres off they're really sensitive so they don't get hit on the highway oh, that's a great and then the devils don't come onto the highway mm. to eat them now do you remember early in the conversation we were talking about the Tasmanian devils of this region uh, on, 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 the, on the egg timers on, on, on the two peninsulas there's yes. no Tasmanian devil disease here we've isolated it at the canal and there's a supplementary fence yeah. well up and down in, in numerous spots along the highway these night owls have been installed and are very effective in stopping roadkill. Wow. And uh, I'm talking with a local person today, virtually with a collaboration towards us using funds generated by a tourism business to purchase more of these along with some donated funds to see if we can stop more roadkill in the wow, area. Brilliant. And we want to do it specifically on these peninsulas because especially on the second peninsula, our Tasmanian devils that live around here and the devil that had visited our little picnic shelter just nearby, that animal uh, is one of a small handful of Tasmanian devils that are unmanaged, untouched. We observe them utilising night cameras, uh, but they essentially are the safest and last truly safe Wild popul- natural wild population of devils okay. left in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's so, so I regard them as the most precious Tasmanian devils, not the ones. We, we have devils in some enclosures here, yeah. which we need to do by, uh, by legislation. Yeah. But it's not unusual for us to find wild devils around the place visiting ours. Mm. And occasionally it's a bit of a kerfuffle mm. and we need a little bit of veterinary patch-up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe from the wild devil, you know, for that sort of thing as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, look... And to clarify, with the peninsula, is there a physical fence there? That's no, the, it's not a physical, it's what we call a virtual fence. And yeah. these electronic units form what we call virtual fences. So, in other words, they're electronic. They beep and flash and frighten the wildlife away. So, that's so the way it happens. they're on the roads. They're on the roads. So, yep. so, the entrance to the peninsulas is across a canal at Dunalley. Yeah. So, there's a barrier. Because the road's there and they won't go near the road, which is beeping. Oh, well, well, there's a bridge across the canal. 
So, so there's okay. a, there, there's a. There's and there's not enough um, native land either side of the bridge. It's, it's just a bridge. Um, well, well, the disease is on the other side of the bridge, and it's not this side. Yeah. And then this side, there is a new fence that's been installed. Okay. And it goes out into the sea. Remembering this is a narrow neck of land. Yeah. Goes out into the sea on each side, and when it comes to the road, there are electronic devices there that to de to deter Tasmanian devils. Mm, okay. So you don't see a physical thing; it's an electronic okay. barrier. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it <laughs> yeah it, it 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 is quite interesting. Yeah. Now, yeah. if the disease were to get on to the first peninsula, yes, called Forest Deer Peninsula, it's not the end of the world because it got onto there at one stage, and the, all of the wild devils they could find were removed in 2013-14. It was considered then to be de devil-free, and thus, and some of those devils that were captured, the healthy ones, were put into a breeding project, and their progeny were later reintroduced. So the same genetics was introduced back here, which I think mm. is the wonderful way to do it. Mm. So you're not really interfering with the, with the nature of it. Yeah. You're managing it, but not interfering and saying, I'm going to introduce yep. super devils, you know, with double genetics <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. So there's people that are able to sort of scout, see if the disease is expressed out here and um, able to capture them? Yes. That's quite a lot of manpower, isn't it, to survey and... It is, but we're dealing with only dozens, not really hundreds. There are only yeah. 200 devils removed from that peninsula. The populations are not terribly large. Yes. Um, and uh, is the government involved in Oh, that? very much so. The, yeah. the, look, our think tank of 2003, 4 and 5, with yes. the, the, the half a dozen scientists plus myself, uh, we came up with ideas, and, and from that, that was progressed and government funding was, was given, plus donated funds, mm -hmm. and that enabled a, a, a formal number of projects to take place. Yep. And that's pretty much when I stepped aside, because that was left to the world of scientists, yeah. etc. Yeah. And there was, you know, a bit of few yeah. power games and things. So yeah. we retired down here, basically, to see if we could continue to save the devils mm. of this peninsula. So what I've been doing now for some years is monitoring the wild Tasmanian devils here that live in the bush, mm -hmm. not far away from here, with special night cams. Yes. So we put a very small amount of food out at various little feed stations. It's in, it, it's, it's in, an, it's in an area that's easily mm -hmm. managed. Um, and the devils come in and we look at the photographs every single night and closely to see if there's any sign of devil facial tumour disease. Wow, yeah. So we do it visually. Yep. And we're highly skilled at looking at the photographs. We have, we have mm -hmm. 100,000 photos. So I, I think by the time you've done that every day for, for it, five yeah. years or so, you know, it becomes uh, yes. quite clear what's happening. Um, and some are tracked? No, we've only, ha we've only ever had to trap one. Oh, sorry, the, track? The, Do you have like um, radio track? No, no, or? no, we don't. Um, yeah. No, they're not. We, we, we've only trapped one and we don't track <laughs> them. The... Uh, uh, but the night vision camera is a great way to survey them and you yes. can identify different individuals. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, visually. Yeah. Uh, look, the next, some devils have been trapped once by the Save the Devil team. Now, we don't go around trapping wild devils. Mm -hmm. And microchips have been installed. Mm -hmm. um, the next stage, we must get round to it because it's been a plan for a little while, is for us to enhance our feeding stations by having a three-sided fence with an entrance through which the devils must pass through a little open gate. Mm -hmm. But contained in that device is a scanner, so we can scan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and with two cameras, yeah. so we can, and we can even weigh them as well Whoa. if they go in there with this. And these are six to $10,000 per unit. Yeah. Now, we've got $20,000 in donated funds, and I think we might buy one of these units. Yeah. But the funds are simply sitting there, yes. plus our contribution. Yes. And the idea is that uh, when I have a, uh, a chat with this uh, local, very helpful lady mm. around here, then, in fact, uh, we'll probably give a commitment. We will buy uh, for you uh, one or two or three kilometres of, of, uh, of night owls to go along the highway. Yeah. Now, the, now, the wildlife doesn't run up and down the highway everywhere. The, what we call hotspots, yeah. where they cross. Okay. Because that's where the animal's traditional highways are, through the bush. Yeah. And our, our highways have cut through them. Right. So those animal highways have been there for <laughs> tens of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Tens of thousands of years. They were so there first. <laughs>
they were there first mm. and we cut through it and it's unfortunate now the reason there's more roadkill in Tasmania than other places it's totally misunderstood by most people look the story is that about 10 to 15,000 years ago the world warmed up and the seas rose and created a lot of the islands of the world Britain became separated from Europe, Singapore became an island, Tasmania became separated from the rest of Australia. Now, after that, somebody introduced a wild dog called the dingo, and, and, and uh, yeah. DNA suggests that it's basically the wild dog of Indonesia or New Guinea. And so that was brought in by humans. And the dingo was a very effective hunter and swept across Australia, chewing up the small native animals. And it ended up displacing the Tasmanian devil. So devils then occurred only in on this island of Tasmania. And so the thylacine and a handful of other species. The Tasmanian devil's the most famous. So here's a conclusion, and some people don't like this very much, mm. but um, I will say then that isn't it good that the Tasmanian devil was saved by global warming? Mm. There you are. <laughs> there you are. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm no pessimist about global warming. There are so many people who, for some reason, are pessimistic and utilising it for a purpose that I do not understand. Why is global warming bad? Maybe it will create opportunities and it will enhance our lives on this planet. Maybe it will give us more energy because it's warmer and we don't require as much oil to heat to heat whatever we need to heat you know mm -hmm. let's look at things positively mm. that's that's what i try to do mm. and don't necessarily see that that's the most dreadful thing that's ever happened to humankind because to be quite frank it's happened before yes yeah, but was it influenced by modern people well we don't anyway. know we don't know look um the, there was a thing called the dark ages uh in in, in historically and it was dark because there'd been so much volcanic activity that uh, the skies were dark. In 1815 or so, Europe was beset by thunderstorms everywhere because there was so much volcanic ash in the air from a volcanic explosion in, in, in Asia mm. that, in fact, all the crops failed. Mm. So, and we don't know what, what, what causes it. Mm. And, and, and one of the things is what humans are doing now causing it maybe that's having some influence or mm. is it just another one of the ups and downs of yeah. of global warming i have uh meet once once a month with some esteemed scientists who can uh if they put anything but the fact that global warming's a disaster on their wikipedia sites it's immediately torn down there is no uh, there is no room for any other viewpoint Mm. And their viewpoint, where they, one's an atmospheric physicist and the other one is uh, uh, quite a brilliant multi-purpose multi professor. They're, yep. they're all professors. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they come up with uh, ideas where we don't really know. I guess so, it's always best to err on the side of caution, though, um, and hope in being positive that it's just a natural cycle. Well, yeah, but... Is global warming bad? I mean, don't, I, mm, that, that, yeah. that's my I'd rather not take the chance, but... Um, well, yeah, but it, it, I mean, you wouldn't cross the road. You're taking a chance every time you cross the road. Or drive in your car, or yeah. jump in an aeroplane. But if I didn't have to cross the road, or... <laughs> well, you do have to jump in an aeroplane, and you do yeah. have to drive your car. Yes. Because, so there you are. Yeah, all within, yeah, all within reason. But, um, no, this is... This is fascinating what you're doing here. I think you're doing a fabulous job. What is the status of the Tassie Devils now? Are they still on the decline in general, but doing well here on this peninsula? What's Look, um, let's look at it two, three ways. One is that the wild Tasmanian Devils generally around the island are still at risk. Mm -hmm. Some at very high risk. There's evidence that in some places where the Devils locally became almost non-existent mm -hmm. that the numbers are increasing again uh, is that the result of resistance we're not sure well, I would hope so mm -hmm. um, 
So that's the wild Tasmanian devils generally around the island. It, uh, about three quarters of the island have the, the devils that have the disease. We don't know a huge amount. We know something, but not mm-hmm. a huge amount about the devils in the southwest wilderness, but there are not a lot there. Yep. And they're isolated by topography, not geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there are mountain ranges and rugged, it's a rugged area. So those Tasmanian devils generally are disease free, yep. but the disease can get in there. What's the chance? A yeah. very small percentage. So then we have the other wild Tasmanian devils, the ones that are on this peninsula where we've managed and isolated the peninsula. And these Tasmanian devils, through management of access, not management of the individual animals, access management, basically we've isolated them. And we've got a double chance because there's a double peninsula. Mm. So the Tasmanian devils of Tasman Peninsula, where we are surrounding us here, are uh, disease-free. And I'll say their status is assured. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say they're 99.99% safe. Yeah, that's great. Now, then we have the third group, the captive animals. There's no disease there. Mm -hmm. If we, in the response that I had to the email where I made the suggestion, how about a captive animal group in 2004, it says here that uh, (laughs) we don't know what's causing the disease, how it's transmitted, and that lack of knowledge limits our options. Yeah. So uh, we do know now. And if you have captive animals and they're well managed and you, you don't have lots of inbreeding and then, you know, yep. that, that, that involves sensible animal management, then that group is safe. And I will, so I will say we've saved the species, mm-hmm. successfully saved the species in captivity, but releasing those animals generally into Tasmania puts them into the risk zone. So that's not a good... It's the, it's the opposite of all other conservation. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah. And we have saved the wild devils of this peninsula. So we've saved a small group of wild devils. Yeah. We've saved a, a satisfactory group of captive animals. Research continues with field studies, and we cross our fingers for the rest of those that are mm. around Tasmania. Yeah. If they were all to die out, wouldn't it be a terrible thing? Well, that's one view. The other view might be, well... Thank goodness that's happened. Now we can release the captive animals there that are disease-free and we've saved the species that way. Okay, yeah. You, you, you see, yeah. so, so, so we have... It's fluid with what happens. Uh, very much so, very much so, yeah. very much so, yeah. Well, that's a great update for where we're at with the Tassie Devil. How can people listening help? Do you have any advice there? Maybe check out your site, well, learn more? Yeah, sure. Look, if that Googling Unzu will we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get us pretty easily. Yep. Um, we, uh, we a general visitation, and it's a couple of hours to visit and join our guides yeah. who take you around and maybe that you can help hand feed some wild honey eaters and hand feed some friendly kangaroos and some little wallabies and marvel at the birds that come in and our little birds of the bush show. Nice. No birds of prey come into that anymore because <laughs> they need to be captive and, 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 and we refuse to do that. Yep. We've pretty much got rid of all of our wild... Uh, uh, wrong. We've pretty much got rid of all of our captive animals, so that yeah. so, so now we say, come and look at the wild animals of Tasmania, mm. and they're different from the ones we had before. So the fish in the stream, the eels in the dam, uh, and the wild sea eagles at the waterfront yeah. uh, are all part of it, and the little possums that live in nest boxes that we've put in, mm. or created their own little homes in the trees we've planted. Mm. We planted a tree. And the animals have come and made that home. We, that's part of the unzoo. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> coming so, together. Yeah, so, so 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 it'll take a couple of hours to yeah, come and do that. Come visit. Yeah, typically people spend a couple of hours yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, well, plus, there's an add-on, and that is they can take, and it's not the cheapest experience in the world, but we do need to charge quite a bit for what we call our devil tracker. Mm. So that's jumping in a, in our old Land Rover and heading up into the bush and seeing how we track the wild devils every single day mm. uh, with our, electronically. And you can see all our archival footage and things like that. Mm, so, cool. so that's pretty interesting. You'll be able to go on that <laughs> later. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure you can, you, can, you can go and do a tracker. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah. Sounds good. So, John, what do you think the future of the Unzu is? I'd like to think that, Chloe, we're setting up a model for the future. We're demonstrating that you don't need to have a boundary fence and it's not necessary to have a lot of animals in cages. 
And I do ask the question, do we now really need zoos? Mm. Once upon a time, the concept of a zoo was to bring animals to the people. So brave explorers went to far-flung climes, captured animals and brought them back and put them behind bars so that the peoples of the city of the world could see them. But the world's changed. Mm. It's possible now for people to go and have a look at the animals. So for people to go to Africa to have a look at wild animals, to go to Borneo, to the mm. Sepulok of orangutan rehabilitation centre in Borneo, it's possible for people to go yeah. there. Not every single person that's true because it costs money to do that. Mm. Not everybody's fortunate enough to be in that situation. But a great number of people can. And also but, the internet is helpful, isn't it? You really can, you know, yes. and, you know, online YouTube videos and yeah. there's lots more media. And David Attenborough. Yes. David Attenborough <laughs> is bringing the natural world into your home. Yeah. So the, the idea that we now still need zoos, I question that. Mm, yeah. I have delivered a paper once, and there are any zookeepers here. And I said, yes. And I said, well, I wonder how you'd feel if your job was made redundant because there's no requirement for people to keep yeah. animals. But you do have a future. You can become a nature guide using yeah. all of the expertise you have. Yeah. But what you don't have is a captive animal that's dependent. I think we should leave the animals as independent creatures rather than have them as dependent. And, you know, Henry Ford was supposed to have said, we must learn to master nature, not be its servant. And I think that neither of those concepts are correct. Mm. We must learn to live with nature. We we mustn't totally be its servant. We must respect nature. We we must live with it. And nor must, must we be its master. And I see that the zoos of the world are taking on the role of master of nature. Mm. And I don't think that's correct in these times. Yeah. The, the world, I believe it is, it's not changing. I believe it has changed. Yes. And our own zoo, I'd like to think, is a model for people to come and see how it can be done. Yeah. I would agree with you. <laughs> I think that's a great statement. I think people listening probably might intuitively... Uh, resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. I hope some people do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Brilliant. There we are. <laughs> that's that's the future of the Unzu. I like it. And um, you know, to wrap up, um, how do you stay inspired? Look, I'm just looking here now. <laughs> now at, at, at the trees we've planted, and every time I come here, I notice how these these little trees uh, have have gone from seedlings into shrubs and now they're one to two meters high. Um, I just love coming over here and gee, that's grown, well done. Yeah, and I, and I, in. I'll give the tree a pat on the head. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a little poem I'm wanting to put, uh, put out and it says, uh, I once saw a seedling and there it, I let it be. When at last I did return, it had become a tree. Oh, yeah. There you are. <laughs> that sums it up, I think. I think so, yeah. And Watching things grow. Watching things grow. In their own time. Wondering where the animals are. Yeah. Seeing if I can discover a new little species of orchid around here. You know, new yeah. to us. Yeah. So we identified them and I, and I, I keep charts on all of those when yeah. they're flowering, etc. Um, well, you've created quite an inspiring place here. And, it, you know, thanks for your hard work. I'm only just learning about what you've been up to for many decades. So, um, yeah, it's great to have spent time with you and... You've been very informative. You're a great storyteller, and thank you. Well, Chloe, it's delightful to have you visit. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope anybody who's inspired can uh, jump on the Unzu site. There, there is also a way in which people can help as well. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, to help us buy one of the night owls, mm. which is $160 per unit. Right. But, but we've raised quite a lot of funds. We have a GoFundMe uh, site, and. Uh, so if you just jump on Unzu and and GoFundMe and yep. and, 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 and Devil Tracker and things, <laughs> there, there we are. And uh, with that, we are donating those funds, uh, not for any commercial purpose, obviously. Uh, yep. It's it's to try and buy night owls and help us with our monitoring here, yeah. equipment for that. So yep. so that's on the side. Yeah. And and we fund our our conservation work here through uh, through visitation. Yeah. And and a few donations. We'd have no corporate sponsors. Yeah. Um, 
Is that by corporate? choice or? Um, in a way, it ties it ties one's hands, and and then there's a certain freedom in being able to do what we're doing. You know, mm. we can plant a tree where we wish to, mm-hmm. uh, rather than having somebody saying, "Look, I think for publicity purposes, <laughs> we want you to do this and this. We'll we'll sponsor you if you do this, this, and this." So there's right. a compromise. Yes, and I'd rather we were able to do it simply, most effectively. Yeah. Uh, with with available funds yeah uh, yeah it, it's called keeping it simple <laughs> i like it. it's a good philosophy well thank you so much john and um thank you for welcoming he- me here and hope you enjoy the rest of your day i hope you find find it interesting yes certainly okay thanks guys thanks bye. For bye thank you for listening guys i hope you enjoyed and have learned a bunch of things about this incredible animal the tassie devil and the important work john does i love conversations like these i'm on such a high afterwards stimulating topics fun learning and lots of inspiration this podcast is all about connecting with people on the ground and sharing their insight with you john was incredibly welcoming to me and generous with his time after the interview we potted around the unzu's native garden with him pointing out small orchids and teaching me more and more he has a genuine passion for the natural world. If you like this show, I'll be most grateful if you could tell a friend, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. It all helps. Or follow me on Instagram at VetChloe to share the adventures. Next episode, and if you follow me on Insta at VetChloe, you will see that I've recently uploaded a lot of pics on the hiking adventures I've been up to in Tasmania. And I want to share more about them with you. Next week, I interview a great friend, Zanny Blekic, a fellow vet who was a part of our hiking crew as we debrief together, as well as pick her brain on her unique expertise when it comes to animal rehabilitation. Things such as after a major orthopedic surgery, improving their mobility and much more. She is incredibly talented in this field and I want to share her insights with you. Till then, stay kind and I'll see you at the next stop.